The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, family, good to be with you. Good to see you. If uh, we haven't met before, my name's Garrison. I'm an elder candidate here. Excited to get to be with you tonight. If you have a Bible, uh, you can open up to James chapter 5. We'll be picking up in verse 7. We've got two weeks left. So exciting. Um, let me pray for us, and then we'll hop in. Father God, thank you um, for all you've done for us. Thank you uh, for the gospel, that we get to sing it, that we get to gather because of it. Um, yeah, Jesus, that you uh, laid down your life for us. Uh, there's nothing we could do to make ourselves right with you, and yet you uh, sacrificially gave us your perfect record. Um, yeah, God, you've made us right with yourself and with one another. Thank you for that. Pray that you would be with us tonight as we talk about a little bit of a heavy topic, and that ultimately, Lord, you would use it um, to grow us, to shape us, to help us look more like you. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Let me ask you a question. Um, you ever spent any time pondering the evolution of the Chick-fil-A drive through me either. Let's do it. Um, if you think back to the beginning, and when I say beginning, I mean like 10, 15 years ago, uh, it was like any other drive through right? You go through it, there's one lane, you pull up to the menu, the microphone, you put your order in, and then you go up to the first menu to pay to get your receipt, and then to the second window to get your food. This obviously was primitive. We didn't need that. So you get rid of the first window, right? So you, you only have one window now. That surely would be enough. We know it's not. Chick-fil-A evolved. They added in some nice workers to go out during breakfast, lunch. We, we know this. This is amazing stuff. To slow down some of the traffic, the wait times is great. Well, that didn't cut it either. They actually uh, added a second lane in many places. Surely that would be enough. We know it's not. They added in a mobile ordering option as well. You can just pull up your phone, put it in, show up, get your food, no lines. It's amazing. But there's more. These days we have DoorDash. You don't even have to leave your home anymore. It's amazing stuff. Why such a robust progression for drive throughs for fast food? You could say, uh, you know, supply and demand. I'm sure that's true in some ways. But I actually think it's uh, impatience. That's consumers, us, our impatience. We want uh, what we want now. We don't want to wait in lines. Now, you could take this two ways. You could say, one, we have an impatience problem. 
Or two, Chick-fil-A is pushing on us an impatience problem under the guise of giving us the Lord's chicken. You can think about that the next time they tell you my pleasure. Um, it's number one. We have a patience problem. And if Chick-fil-A doesn't convince you, uh, think about this. How many of you in the last week, the last month, you've been on your phone downloading a picture, uh, pulling up a document, whatever, and after three or four seconds, you're like, this is taking way too much time. I'm done. It's taking way too much time for this object to send a signal to space to shoot around and back. Three seconds is way too much. I'm over it. We laugh because it's true. We're perpetually impatient. How many of you have yelled at a screen before? It's safe in here. You can be honest. It's funny. It's quirky because it's universal. We all have this. A lot of things in our lives are crafted because of this. Uh, it's funny, but the problem is it's sinful because impatience creates in us this posture of you need to give me what I want when I want it right now. And if anything's in the way of that, then you're just a problem. And there's many ways uh, why this could be problematic, but tonight James is going to focus on one, one area, and that's suffering. So uh, we talked about this at the beginning of the series, or, or trials, suffering, they're going to come. It's not if, it's a when. You will experience suffering and trials. And uh, as we said, uh, you've got two options. You can either make it through trials, you can try to make it on your own, or you can mature. And as a Christian, our aim is to endure through trials well, to suffer well. So tonight is a little bit of an expounding on that first sermon. James is going to say tonight, in order to suffer well, you need one thing, one really important thing. You need patience. To suffer well, you have to be patience. Uh, suffering reveals uh, whether or not we have dead or living faith. So dead faith makes it through suffering, as we've said, but living faith suffers patiently. Living faith suffers patiently. Just like every week, James is going to give us a better way. In order to do that, he's going to give us three examples of what patience and suffering actually look like. So that's what we'll parse through tonight, three examples. So let's hop in James chapter 5, picking it up in verse 7. Read with me. It says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. This is our first example. It's the example of the farmer. We're going to see the patience of the farmer. So if you spend any time uh, reading through the New Testament. Quickly, you'll get into the Gospels. You'll see the teachings of Jesus, and you'll see a little bit of a pattern where the kingdom of God and farming are connected. There's a lot of imagery we get, a lot of analogies, things like the strength of your faith being like a mustard seed. The Word of God, uh, when it's preached, is sowed. It's thrown out. It's planted. It says the end of times is like a harvest that Jesus calls himself the true vine. And that if we remain in him, we'll bear fruit. He himself says the kingdom of God itself is like seed that sprouts up, and the farmer has no idea when or how it happened. So farming and the kingdom of God are tied together, and there's a lot of reasons for this, uh, but a main one is because both require patience. Both require waiting. If you want to see the kingdom of God, you'll have to have patience because it sprouts up. 
You don't know why the kingdom of God really explodes over here and not over here. It's unexpected and requires waiting. So you have to have patience, and this is what James is picking up here, the same teaching of his half-brother Jesus. But he says when you suffer, you have to have this as well. So specifically, uh, he's talking about these late and early rains. So he's pointing us towards just the season, the season in general. It's a year-long process. So in this climate, uh, it starts in the summer. In the summer, the soil is too hard too hot to do anything. It's hardened. So you needed these early rains to actually soften it up and then get some of the nutrients at the front load. But then you're literally waiting six to nine months until you get the late rains. So what this is, is the farmers are waiting around all year thinking, is it actually going to happen this time? I know we've done it before, but this is a long wait. When's the harvest going to come? So like the farmer, we ask, when will the fruit come? And suffering The farmer, we ask, when will the fruit come? Have you ever found yourself asking that question in suffering? When will it get better? Will it actually be worth it? When will this finish? Like, uh, even as a Christian, you're like, I know I'm supposed to be getting a lesson out of this. I think I got that. I think I got the lesson. When are we moving on? Will it actually be worth it? And here's the temptation. We rush ahead of God. We rush ahead of God. Whatever it is, whatever the suffering actually is, it could be things uh, internally, depression, anxiety, it could be external painful circumstances, financial hardship. What that creates in us is uh, we can't see the end. This is going on forever. What's going to happen here? When, how is this actually going to change? And we ask those questions, and we want to move So there's plenty of ways that we actually rush through this type of stuff. So uh, it could be you're in pain, whatever it is, the circumstances, internal, and you start to just push it down, or you try to escape it. Either way, you're not dealing with it anymore. I just want to be okay. So when people actually ask me how I'm doing, I just say, I'm fine. Uh, It could be uh, with a conflict, with a friend, with uh, somebody in your group, with a family member. And it's happened so much that instead of continuing to show up to talk about it, you just say, we're fine, I'm good, and you don't deal with it, and it just happens again. What this boils down to is we're not trusting God's timing in our life, in us, what he's trying to do in us, or in others. So right back to the first point, when we rush, we're just trying to make it. That's what dead faith does. So James sees that, and he corrects them with this lesson. So if you're asking, when will we see the fruit? I want to rush. James says, no, look to the coming of the Lord. The lesson of the farmer is the coming of the Lord is at hand. So James corrects them and us by saying, hey, look to Jesus. So uh, whenever you're in a long period of suffering, what it does to you is it seems like this is going to be the whole story. We're we're just going to be here. I can't see ahead. I'm consumed by it. What are we going to do? And James says, that's not the end of the story. That there's actually more to come. He says, remember, God is coming back. Jesus is coming back to right all the wrongs. We don't have to rush because we're already moving towards the solution. So in your depression, in your anxiety, when you just want to get away from it, when you're tired, when you've done all of the things, when you've talked about it, when you've tried every solution out there, you need to know and remember that there is a day coming when Jesus will wipe it all away. 
Uh, when, whenever tragedy comes out of nowhere, death, disability, random diagnosis that changes your life, there will be a day when that is a distant memory of the past. So James says when it comes to your suffering, wait on the Lord, that he's coming back in the same way that the farmer has to trust that the harvest is coming, we in the same way trust that God is on his way back. We are one day closer than we were. So the first example is the farmer in suffering. Be patient. Don't rush. Remember that the Lord is coming. Let's look back for our next one, verse 9. It says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. So our second example for tonight is the patience of the prophets. Patience of the prophets. So same type of deal. We got to get a little bit of context for what he's actually talking about here. So uh, the pattern of the Old Testament is God uh, has a people, the Israelites, right? And they're in a covenant together. And the way it works is that the people are not faithful to the covenant. And it kind of goes in cycles where God's like, this is what the covenant is. And the people are like, no, and they rebel. And then God sends a prophet to correct, to teach, to say things in his name. Uh, it would be impossible to get into specifics of what that is, but James, um, I think a, a list that actually helps James is in Hebrews 11. It's a great summary of what the prophets actually did and what they looked like. So put a finger on James, flip over to Hebrews 11, or just look behind me. This is a passage called the Hall of Faith. Uh, it's semi-famous. It's essentially highlighting all of the faithful uh, figures throughout the Bible. So this is Hebrews eleven thirty two. 32. It says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Verse 35, Women received back their dead by resurrection. So this is kind of what James is talking about here. He says, look to all of the, the famous, the faithful figures throughout the Bible. Look at them. Don't we consider them blessed? I mean, think, look, at, look at what happened. They were so steadfast and faithful. Look at what happened in their lives. Look at the miracles. They enforced justice, obtained promises. We would consider them blessed, right? And for them, it must surely be easy to be patient in suffering if you've got their results, right? Well, the writer of Hebrews keeps going. In the same exact verse, he finishes, women received back their dead by resurrection, and then this, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even ch uh, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they, were, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Not so blessed, huh? That would be us interpreting this wrong. I, I don't know about you, I tend to think if you're faithful, 
especially when it comes to things like uh, preaching the gospel, speaking into other people, uh, that, that it should go well, right? That there should be some type of redemption, some mark that leaves things better than they were. But sometimes it doesn't work out that way, especially not for the prophets. The truth is it almost always goes bad for them. If you read the Old Testament at all, it's full of prophets that are persecuted, killed, mocked, exiled. And the question you find them asking over and over again in the Old Testament is this, when will God avenge me? This is question number two, when will God avenge me? Once again, have, have you experienced yourself saying that, feeling that? You're like, I, I don't deserve this. I was just trying to help the person. <laughs> Will there be some type of relational difficulty building with somebody, somebody in your group? It's just like, I'm just trying to help them. And I'm the one being mistreated. Like, I'm not even saying that I did everything perfectly. But like, come on. Like, let's tilt the scales a little bit. When's God going to take my side here? When's he going to make this right? When's he going to show up and do something here? Which brings us right into the temptation. Second temptation is to grumble and complain. We grumble and complain. So we try to share the gospel. We try to push in to the family member, to our friends, to somebody in your group, to somebody's blind spot, and it goes badly. It goes really badly. They respond poorly. They push us away. And the temptation is not that we would pray for them, that we would continue to show up in that relationship. It's that we would think and say to others, can you believe them? Can you believe how immature they are? Can you believe how badly they're missing it? I would never. That's what's underneath it, right? Is I would never. Uh, I get that hurt. It's really painful. There's, uh, there are a lot of things out there that are hurtful and painful, and this one is unique, uniquely frustrating. But here's the issue. Hurt that is not transformed is transferred. Hurt that isn't transformed is transferred. So if you get hurt, even uh, when you're trying to do the right thing, which is what we're talking about in this text, compared to the prophets, suffering for the sake of righteousness and caring for others, if we don't let the Lord have that hurt, whether it be just or unjust, then we just turn around and transfer it to other people. We end up doing the same things that are frustrating us, and we lose all empathy, all grace, and uh, the danger is that we would uh, throw in the towel on any redemption in the other person's life and in our own life. Um, there will be times when you go to share the gospel, to push in, to do the uncomfortable thing, right? Like, I'm just trying to follow Jesus here. I want to do the commandment, which doesn't, like, benefit me necessarily. Like, uh, pointing out your blind spot does nothing for me. It just makes me uncomfortable. But I want to do it because I love you. And it'll blow up in your face. That, that is promised. It is part of the deal. Um, and we can think, but God, this is like the thing that you want. You want me to be faithful. And you promise that you want uh, to redeem all of this mess. You want to show up and you want to save why aren't you doing it? Do you want to? Of course he does. But it, it's not always going to look like how we want it to. And that, that's part of it. And James is saying that you can be faithful just like a prophet, 
and not be crushed by disappointment and doubt, but actually stand firm. You just have to know this one lesson. And it's this, God is the good judge. God is the good judge. So we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Uh, Judgment is coming, therefore uh, judge not. That in light of coming judgment, we actually uh, change and live out in light of it. And this is scary. It's a little, uh, it can be a little bit baffling to think about that. But this is how the people of God have dealt with this type of suffering forever. Because they think God is the good judge. He's the one in control. Um, there's plenty of examples of what this looks like throughout the Bible. But a really beautiful one to me is uh, David praying Psalm 43. So I'm going to read this one over you. Uh, The context is that David, at one point in his life, has been almost kicked out of his kingdom by his own son. He's on the run for his life. His own child wants to kill him and take over. He's causing an uprising. And this is what David prays while he's hiding. This is Psalm 43, verse 1. It says, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. Uh, David's circumstances are very bad. They're not good. (laughs) It's going to take some time for them to get better. And what does he do here? Does he complain? Does he grumble? Does he gossip? No, he's taking it to God. He recognizes his need for God to take some action here, for God to step in. He notices uh, that I actually need defending, and the only person that can do that is God. He needs God to sustain him, Why? What causes that shift in somebody? In circumstances, I would imagine, far different, deeper, harder than anything we could imagine. It's by recognizing that God is good, God is in control, and God is the one that judges, and we are not. So when you experience real relational fallout, because I know many of us have, and many of us will in the future, when you experience it, when there's barely any resolution at all, remember God's the judge. God's the judge. Uh, there's this uh, effect, ever you go through this, that you can feel almost crazy. Like uh, you tried to do the right thing, and yet there's no resolution, and the person has just kind of hardened their heart against you. You can really be like, am I the one that's wrong? Am I crazy? Like I think that you're in sin, but I'm starting to doubt myself here because I don't see God at work, and I... What's going on here? What you need in that moment is to know that God sees it. He sees you. You do not need a uh, vengeance, even vindication. You need God. You don't need to keep yourself up all night wondering what I could have said, how I could have. There's space for that, and you got to own what you can own. But at some point, you got to give God the control and trust that He is the judge and you are not. That's our second piece, the patience of the prophets. Let's look back for our last one. Picking up in verse 11 again. It says, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That's our third one tonight, the patience of Job. Patience of Job. If you know anything about Job, you might, you might know that this one might get a little real. Um, Job is a book in the Old Testament. It's very long. It's about 42 chapters. Uh, Really, uh, this is my very brief kind of summary, and it comes kind of from the first couple chapters. So you get this picture of God. He's in his throne room. He's being worshipped by the angels. The devil comes in, 
and they kind of catch up a little bit. And the devil's essentially like, is there, you know, who's the right? There's no righteous people. And God's like, have you considered Job? And the devil's like, he's not really righteous. He just loves you for the things you've given him. And God's like, bet. Um, and then the devil goes after Job. And we get over a couple chapters, Job losing everything. He is described as a righteous man, upright in God's eyes, holy, and he loses everything. He's done nothing wrong. He loses his wealth, his health, says he loses all of his kids. And then uh, over the next 30 chapters, we get Job sitting with three really not so great friends, kind of all telling him bad reasons for why all of this is happening. Saying like, Job, it's kind of your fault, right? And Job's like, I don't know. The, the point of Job, a huge piece of it, is that sometimes suffering is completely inexplicable. They just, you're not going to know why. Like Job, Job didn't get to sit in the throne room and hear out like God being like, yeah, go for it. He would have been like, no, don't do that. In all of that, Job is tempted to ask, why is this happening to me? Question number three is, why is this happening to me? Once again, don't we do the same thing? Whenever uh, suffering that's just out of the blue comes on us, why is this happening to me? When you don't get the result you wanted, when the thing you have prayed for, it's a good thing, it's relief from something, relief from sin, relief from whatever. It's been months, years, it's not there. Why is this happening to me? Isn't God supposed to be for my good? I, I feel like I don't deserve this. Uh, a big part of Job as well is, uh, is wondering, is suffering actually related to what we did? And sometimes the answer is yes, but in Job's case, no. Do I deserve this? Here's the temptation in the midst of that. It's to believe that God isn't present or good. We wonder, why is this happening to me? Then we go to God isn't present or good, which is, uh, in my opinion, probably the most all-encompassing emotional response to suffering. It's just, why, God, do you care about me? Do you love me? I thought he was for my good. I know I'm not perfect, right? But this, this is too far. Where are you? Um, the, the real question that gets asked all the time is if, if this is happening to me, how could God be good? How could he be present? He must be against me. Is this your response? A lot of times it's my response. Is that God has abandoned us. That he isn't good or kind. That do I deserve this? Is all of my effort in following for Jesus for nothing if this is what happens to me? Maybe you wouldn't say it like that. Maybe that you wouldn't say like, no, 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 God's, a, God's definitely abandoned me. No, maybe that's not where your mind goes, but maybe underneath different emotions, if you pull it back, is, is that actually what you're thinking? If it is, I, I think it exposes a, a deep heart level issue in us, which I believe is very tempting. I, I think all of us have a tendency to believe if we do the right things, then good things should happen for us. That's kind of the American thing, but I think it actually really sneaks in to the Christian life. Not necessarily like prosperity gospel. That's not really what I'm talking about. But I am talking about if we do the right things, if we follow Jesus in community, read my Bible, pray, then I should have a very easy relationship with my spouse, really awesome kids, 
Uh, I should feel his presence. I, my depression, my anxiety should go away. Things like that. I shouldn't have really a lot of tension in my community. I definitely, uh, I don't want like death and suffering to be on the table, especially this early in my life. Sneaky. It's not necessarily that, oh yeah, yeah, God's going to give me all the money. It's smaller things. It's more subtle. And it's sneaky because it's a half-truth. Because the reality is, if you follow Jesus and are being sanctified, then there are going to be some things that get better in your life. Because you're going to grow. So uh, even me personally, uh, things like shame, lust, uh, anxiety, yeah, they've, they've become less and less issues in my life the more I follow Jesus. But not everything has, and not everything is affected just like that. And it's dangerous if you start to believe it is going to be like that. And whenever, when something comes up, you go back into that mindset of, wait, how? Why? The truth is there's going to be issues and circumstances in your life that come up, that happen, that are horrible. And you may never know the reason why. That's not promised. Like, uh, sometimes, like, we might think that spiritual maturity kind of equals, like, clarity on things, especially when it comes to suffering. And the, re the reality is that may not be true. We may never know why they happen, it, but we do know it's not because God doesn't love us or love you. It isn't because God isn't good or present. Yet, that's still all a really hard pill to swallow. But that's the reason James is referencing Job. James references one of the heaviest books in the Bible because the people he's writing to know the last five chapters of Job. Last five chapters of Job, we see God show up. He, he meets Job in the most broken places in his life. He heals Job. He restores Job. We see the compassion and the mercy and the plans of God revealed through his suffering. It's beautiful, but that's not the point of Job. At the very end of the book, after 42 chapters, after everything go, Job goes through, he goes through the ups and downs, ups and downs, we get to his heart. We get to what God was trying to pull out of him. Job responds by saying this. It's the very end of the book. He says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Uh, this is the lesson of Job. God has plans. He has purposes, compassion, and mercy. God has purposes, compassion, and mercy. The point of Job is not that when suffering comes, you're going to get restored everything back. That'd be great. That can happen. That's not what it's about, and that's not what's promised. It's not uh, that you're going to get all of the answers, or that God's going to show up in a whirlwind like he does and say all of the, re you know, that's not what it's about. It's this. It's to show the Lord has purposes in your suffering. He has purposes in your pain. He has compassion in your pain. He wants to use all of your suffering, the big and the small, to draw you closer to himself. That's what it's all about. That ultimately, somehow, in a way that we'll never be able to fully understand the side of heaven, that God is working, that he's doing something in the midst of our suffering for his own purposes. Um, there's a Christian um, author uh, and missionary, I've mentioned her a few times in sermons, named Elizabeth Elliot. 
Uh, she wrote uh, a novel uh, called No Graven Image. Uh, it's, it's been really helpful for me. Um, essentially, it's, it's a, a fictional story based off of some of her real-life experiences. What, what it's about um, is it's about this missionary who, a uh, young woman, she feels called by God to go to South America, uh, to translate Bibles, to be on mission with, uh, with a native tribe that's unreached. She goes down there, and she knows she's called, but she has no idea how it's going to play out. But she knows, God sent me here. And she's like, the whole, the whole story is, how are we actually going to make this happen? How are we going to translate these Bibles? It's going to take me years to do this. Well, she prays, she prays, and she finally meets this man named Pedro. And Pedro is literally the only person on the planet that knows all the languages to be able to translate the Bibles for, um, for these tribes. They immediately get to work. She's praising God. God, you're doing something. You're going to use him. You're going to use me to save these people. One morning, she goes to Pedro's house, and he's got an infected cut in his leg. And she gives him penicillin. He immediately starts having uh, a reaction. And she's sitting there watching him die, and she prays, God, do something. This is your plan. Save him. I know you can save him. You're good. This was your plan. You want to use him? Save him. You can do it. Pedro dies, and she's standing at his funeral. And this is her quote. It says, And God, what of him? I am with thee, he had said. With me in this? He had allowed Pedro to die. Or, and I could not then, nor can I deny the possibility today, he had allowed me to kill him. And does he now, I ask myself there at the graveside, ask me to worship him? Isn't that us in suffering? God, this? What do you want me to do here? The story's a little bit bleak. It kind of ends there. A lot of critique for it. A lot of people said, that's not what would happen. I love this quote at the very end. It's on the last page. It's stuck with me. Kind of sums up the whole idea of the book. Quote is, God, if he was merely my accomplice, had betrayed me. If, on the other hand, he was my God, he had freed me. Her point is that the God that only exists uh, to fulfill his promises in the way that you think, to give you all of the answers, all of the clarity, uh, all of the comfort, the support of your plans, and to bless you, that's not a real God at all. That is the graven image that she talked about. That's just an accomplice. And I think some of us uh, have been worshiping, praying to, relating to a God, not like the God of the universe at all, but one that's like our business partner. And, and when suffering comes, our, our God isn't holding up the deal anymore. That, that type of God, the one whose plans are exactly like yours, even if they're good, even if they're good plans, like healing, like salvation, like family, like solid community, whatever. That God will surely disappoint you because that God isn't real. He'll betray you. He'll betray you. But the God of the Bible, he wants to use your suffering. He wants to use your suffering to free you in it, to actually say, hey, you were not worshiping me. Come worship me now. Not the graven image, not a false hope, even one that's painted with Christian hope. But come worship me. 
Come be with me. He wants us to trust him enough to let go of control over all of the circumstances in our life, to follow him in hostility, to worship him when we have no answers, which uh, at face value is impossible, seems impossible. He, He wants to transform you so that you can say things like Job did, but now my eyes see you, but it's going to take some work. Um, This is where I want to end. James calls us to imitate. He calls us to imitate the farmer, the prophet, Job, that in our suffering we'd remember God, that we'd remember he's faithful, that he's present, that he's the good judge, that we'd remember his compassion, purposes, and mercy when we experience uh, inexplicable suffering. Um, Those are great examples. They're great tips, but I think I know uh, ourselves, myself enough to know that uh, my ability, our ability to follow good examples is not going to take us very far. We need the perfect example who didn't just set the example, but actually lived it out in our place. Jesus didn't rush God in his own suffering, but he waited perfectly. He remembered that God is the good judge when he was scoffed at, when he was mocked, when he was killed, he submitted to the Father in his death, the worst and egregious suffering ever to happen without grumbling or complaining. Uh, He did all of that so that all of us who trust in him could have his perfect record. But even more than that, we we don't just need his perfect record and the examples, we need him. We get not just the perfect record, we get the perfect presence. We get the gospel, we get grace, and we get him. That's what we need. We're not just patient, we're patient with Jesus at our side. We wait with him. We establish our hearts in him. Regardless of how well you do it, he's there with us. Uh, The beauty of the gospel and of Jesus' presence with us is there's no amount of waiting, of questions, of doubt that could separate us from him from his presence, and from his grace. That's the, that's the hope, and that's what we get to celebrate every week uh, when we take communion. So if you've got a cup, we're going to close, as we always do, by remembering Jesus, that on the night he was betrayed, he took the cup, and he said, this bread is my body, broken for you. So church family, wherever you're at, in suffering, doubt, pain, grief, Remember Jesus' body broken for you. Take it now. He also said, look at this wine. This is my blood that is shed for you. Take it and remember me. You can do that now as well. I'm going to pray for us. As I pray, I I would just encourage you to remember uh, the gospel. Remember Jesus' presence beside you. Remember his spirit inside of you that you are never alone, that he will never forsake you regardless of the circumstance, regardless of what you feel. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your presence. We confess it's so hard sometimes in this world where we experience uh, all forms of suffering, where we have to wait We want a rush. We want it to be gone. We want a reprieve. We want comfort. We doubt you in it. We believe that you don't see us. 
that you've forgotten us. Yeah, we know you're coming back to restore us, to restore all things, to wipe away all tears. God, we confess it's really hard to be faithful in community to others, to, to share the gospel. Uh, some of us are scared to be faithful uh, again because of hurt in the past. God, help us to remember you, Jesus, that you, uh, you've gone before us in all things, that you were faithful in how you treated others and how you shared truth. Help us to remember that you're the judge, that you see. And finally, God, we confess that we're hurt, that we're sad, that we're grieving for things that we don't understand, we don't have the answers to, and we're, we're a little tired of waiting. We're wondering when you're going to make things better. Jesus, help us to remember that you have purposes, compassion, and mercy, even when we can't see it, even when we don't feel it. Help us to see you going to the cross, going into your own suffering, choosing it, so that we can know that whenever we walk into it, we know we're not alone. We thank you for loving us. Pray it all in your name, Jesus. Amen.